now I've got the uh, privilege of inviting Gavin up just to, to share uh, a message with us today. And as Tim alluded to, um, Gavin is a bit of a local these days. He used to be from the eastern suburbs and then saw the light and crossed the bridge and uh, came over to the west and has spent some time uh, at Footscray Churches of Christ more, most recently. We finished up there about a year ago. So, um, Gavin, it was a real blessing to have you here today. So we look forward to the word that you bring to us today. Thank you. Well, thank you for the welcome. And uh, I just wanted to acknowledge uh, the goodness of God in the change in the weather. Well, that's not everyone who can do that, is it? <laughs> uh, I want to thank God in various ways because a bit of the story that uh, wasn't included was that uh, in uh, August of 2017, I was diagnosed with colon cancer. And uh, subsequent to that, I went into a journey of treatment uh, that included uh, uh, some chemo that began in January of last year. And around about this time last year, we also decided we were going to completely remodel our front yard, uh, which involved taking just about every plant out, uh, a bit of uh, brickwork uh, brick that was there. Uh, then we put in retaining walls and uh, redid the sprinkler system. Dirt came in uh, and then it sat there because it was heading towards summer. And then... Uh, in the, in the meantime, uh, I've completed my treatment. I'm officially in re, uh, remission. Uh, so I'm thankful for God for that big thing. Uh, this past week we spread uh, 10 cubic metres of mulch. Uh, and then yesterday we planted 95 plants, which is nearly complete, but a few more to get. We just completed uh, planting the plants and our eldest son... Uh, Misha uh, just started watering them in and God decided to help him. It started (laughs) raining. And so the weather was perfect for uh, planting plants and uh, so we're thankful for God for big things and for little things. I want to thank you for your welcome. I want to thank uh, Megan for the opportunity of uh, coming and and speaking today. Although I... uh, when I found out the passage, I thought, hmm, okay, that's a bit interesting. Uh, but it's a passage that I'm sure that uh, one way or another you're familiar with, and a passage that perhaps you've heard sermons on over the years, as I have, and I've spoken from this passage a number of times. So let us uh, turn, if you've got your, uh, your Kindles or your phones, or like me, you've got the old printed page, Turn to Ephesians chapter 5, and uh, we're going to read the first section, the end of uh, chapter 5 from verse 21, uh, and see what, uh, see what I make of it. And hopefully that's what God makes of it. Okay, so Ephesians 5, uh, 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. 
Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hates, hated uh, their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his wife and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, back to the subject, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Well, that's an interesting passage, and I'm sure as I read it, um, for some of you there was uh, some, some internal reactions and thoughts. I'd like to unpack this, my understanding of this passage, which is evolved over the years as uh, I've been a Christian since I was about age nine. So it is a few years ago, uh, as you can see. This passage, as every passage, sits within, nestles within a big narrative, the narrative of the whole Bible. Uh, And you will notice as I was reading through, some of you will be aware that Paul himself makes reference back to the early chapters of Genesis. And I think it's really helpful in understanding this passage if we do actually for a moment go back to those first few chapters of Genesis and see what is actually there and use that as a context to try to understand what Paul is driving at in this passage that we have before us today. As you might guess, most of the message is going to deal with these verses and then that section in the beginning of chapter 6 will just uh, tie up at the end. So if you've got Bibles with me, I'd like to turn back to uh, Genesis. And Genesis chapter 3. Well, 1, 2 and 3 actually. Uh, and we'll just make reference to a few things there uh, and, and use that as a framework, a lens within which to look at Ephesians chapter 5. In Genesis chapter 1, in that creation story, and I realise that people read the text uh, of Ephesians. I realise that uh, Christians read Genesis in different ways. Some take it as a literal six days of uh, creation, others uh, as sort of a myth that represents uh, reality, but is not itself in detail exactly how things happen, Uh, a variety of ways. Uh, In one sense, it doesn't matter how we read the early part of Genesis, because Genesis' story, however it is read, forms the framework within which the rest of the story unfolds. So we can't ignore it. However we understand that we can't ignore it. Uh, And so I invite you to turn to chapter 1. 
And there in chapter 1 we find that on the sixth day with creation of humankind, that God says, uh, let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image. And he created man and he created them male and female, man and woman together. Now that to me creates a fundamental framework within which everything else needs to be understood. Man and woman are created together to be the representative or the, the likeness, the image of God. And there's a sense in which, and I want to acknowledge that some people are sing, single, and, and that's, that's a wonderful, can be a wonderful state if you're happy with it, if you're content with it. But there is a sense in Genesis chapter 1 where it is together Man and woman together represent the fullness, in some sense, of God. It is not man on his own, and sort of woman sort of is back there as a uh, just just a purely a helper, just uh, almost irrelevant. But it is man and woman together who represent the fullness and the image of God. So that forms part of the context. Paul himself in chapter 2, refers to Genesis chapter 2, in that sense of the two becoming one flesh. And he uses that specifically to say, uh, to represent the way in which we are joined to Christ. When we come to faith in Christ, we are joined to him and... This is something that I'm not going to dwell on today, but I invite you, especially at this Easter season, to reflect on what Paul might be driving at and to <coughs> meditate on that scripture, that thought that we become one in him. We're joined in Christ. That's a wonderful thought, isn't it? When we come to faith in Jesus, we become joined to the eternal one, Jesus then in Genesis chapter 3, you know that there is this description of the fall and the temptation and the fall. And again, however we might read it, this story is foundational to the rest of the biblical narrative. So these opening chapters are absolutely critical. We can't ignore them. You know the context of the fall... And the fall has consequences. And I particularly draw your attention to uh, verse 22. And there's a consequence for the man, there's a consequence for the woman, there's a consequence for uh, whatever is represented by the serpent. The consequence for the woman, sorry, verse 16, I'll make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour you'll give birth to your children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. The husband will rule over her. Her desire will be for her husband. That word... Desire comes from a Hebrew word that only occurs three times in the whole of the Old Testament. And its meaning is a little bit obscure. 
it could also be turning. So there's a little uncertainty exactly what the word means. So notice that this is a consequence of fall. Something has profoundly shifted. It wasn't like this before. It has become like this as a consequence of the disobedience. So when it says the husband will rule over you, this is a consequence of rebellion or a consequence of fall. It is a shift, a profound shift. It was not like that before. And also this desire, whatever it might be, that the woman is sort of stuck with, is also a consequence of fall. It wasn't like that before. As I've reflected on this passage over years, it seems, my suspicion, and this is a, the particular position I've come to at this point, <laughs> it seems to keep developing, my suspicion is that this desire for the husband is a desire for what things were like prior to the fall. There has entered a, a sort of a competition or, or a, a, a break in the relationship. And now the man tends to rule over and dominate the woman. And the woman has this this desire for things as they were, where it was, in my mind, much more a co cooperative, joint, equal relationship. But this has been severed. It has been broken. Broken by the rebellion. And it has left the two people, the man and the woman, in contention with one another. Also, as part of this big story, of course, is the story of redemption. <coughs> God's intention to set to right what was broken. So my understanding is that the movement of Scripture is towards the restoration of things. And indeed, not just a return to Eden, but that things be even more wonderful at the end than they were at the beginning before it all went wrong. But we're still on the journey. We haven't quite got there yet. And scripture, as you look at scripture, uh, you find very broken relationships, polygamy and uh, a sense of ownership of women just being a chattel, wives being just a chattel of the, the males even amongst the children of Israel. But gradually that shifts. And by the time you get particularly to the revelation of Christ, uh, there's this idea of, of singularity, of one man, one woman, one Christ and one bride, the church. And, and God brings this vision of we as, and when we come to faith, of being joined together into one, one body, uh, the bride joined to, to one husband, Christ, and joined in a profound unity, which Paul alludes to in this passage, which is amazing and beautiful, and we don't quite know fully what it's going to be 
it already appears wonderful, what we experience will be much more wonderful than what is intimated in these few words that Paul expresses in Ephesians 5. That, to me, is the big picture. Okay? So, having looked at the big picture, from my perspective, we look at Ephesians 6, and, sorry, Ephesians 5, and I just want to spend a few moments on it. Verse 22, wives, so I should start at verse 21, because that is, that's the opening remark, that's the, the, in the immediate context, that is the framework within which we need to understand what follows. What does it say? Submit to one another out of reverence of Christ. Now, it both looks backward towards the passage that came before, which is looking at uh, how we function within the body of Christ, within the local church, uh, and it is around mutual submission. It's not about one lording it over the other. It's around serving one another, and that's inclusive of, uh, of those that are called to leadership in the church. We're not here to lord it over. We are here to serve the body. We submit to one another. We work for the good of the other, not for ourselves. That is the broad context that Paul establishes both for what has just come, uh, but just been before and what we now look at, this relationship or a set of relationships, first of all, husband and wife. So the key is mutual submission. What does that actually look like? Well, he goes on to say, wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. As I've been looking at this again, that seems to me to be a key. How do we submit to the Lord? Now, these days my preaching is developed and I do like some feedback. And so I, don't, I ask questions and they're not rhetorical ones. I'd like you to actually <laughs> respond. How, how does Christ want us to submit to him? What does submission to Christ look like? What is the motivation? What is the desire? What, is, what does it actually look like? Yielding your life to him. Okay, yielding our life to him. Yeah. Why would we do that? Why would we yield our life to him? Yeah. Because we trust him? No, why do we trust him? It's trustworthy. It depends on what you're yielding yourselves to. It depends on what you're yielding yourselves to. So what are we yielding ourselves to in this particular instant when we're talking about Christ? The will of the Father. The, the, the desires, the direction that God wants for each of our relationships. Jesus' purpose for being here to live, to show, to demonstrate that we, we're in it together. Yeah, okay. But why would we do that? Why would we submit it? You know, we live in a culture that says it's every man for himself, every woman for themselves. So, you know, make of life what you will. It's about actualising yourself, of, of making of yourself what you will, and sometimes at the cost of others, but it, it's all about me. So why would we yield our lives to Christ? Because it's life itself. Sorry? Okay, and that comes from trust. We trust Jesus 
because God first loved us, rescued us. He, he loved us, the love of Christ. Okay, we're getting there, at least in my mind, we're making some progress. Okay. Uh, we, we trust Jesus. Sorry? He is the Almighty, He is the more powerful. Okay, well. We know, in our, we know by our faith that He is the main. The per- he's not a person. He is the one who controls everything. And if we concede to his will, we know that he has our best interests. Okay, you know, we know that he has our... And that's what I want to drive at. How do we know that he's got our best interests at heart? How do we know? Not just by faith. There's something else. I think that we... It is partly by faith, but... Because he gave us Jesus. It's Easter, isn't it? What do we remember at Easter? He died on the cross. Why did he cry on the cross? Plenty of people die. We all eventually die. Unless Christ decides to come back a bit early. In my mind. To give us life. And so he takes our place. Why does he take our place? Well, we need him. We're sinners, but... Yeah, he could have said, what the heck, they're all sinners and they deserve what they get. He didn't do that. Uh, why didn't he do that? He wanted to restore the relationship that was broken. He wanted to restore the relationship that's broken. Why would he want to do that? It's broken. Good riddance. Yes. Because he loved us. He loves us. Now, sometimes life is tough, doesn't it? Isn't it? But we, this, we believe, we have faith, we have come to know Jesus, and even when things are tough, we've come to the point of knowing that he loves us regardless. That those tough times aren't a reflection of somehow he's angry with us. He's tossed us over. We believe in a profound, steadfast, steady love that he is orientated towards us all the time and completely. There's no shadow of turning in thee, the old hymn. We come to trust Jesus that unlike our human relations, Jesus is absolutely true, absolutely pure, that he can be trusted utterly, that his love is complete, that he'll only do what is good for us. If we don't believe that, then we'll turn away. But we've come to understand that Jesus is profoundly trustworthy. And we know that particularly because at an Easter two millennia ago, he gave his life willingly that he might redeem us to himself and he did it out of love. And so we yield our life and we say, whatever, Lord, I just want to live my life in the context of knowing your love and trusting you. I found a place place of rest in my life, a place where I don't have to strive because I've found your love. And so I yield myself to you. Well, 
the reality is we keep on having to yield again and again, <laughs> as you were alluding to uh, earlier, Phil. The uh, Christian life is a bit of a journey. He's utterly faithful to us. Uh, we learn to be more and more faithful to him, and it's a bit of a journey, isn't it? It is, for me, still at my, uh, at my age. It will be to the day I die. Okay, so yielding to Christ. It goes then automatically on in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Okay. And gave himself up for her. In some respects I see this passage in Ephesians 5 as really aspirational. Notice what I said about that uh, Genesis chapter 3 that there has become a break in the relationship and there's contention. That uh, there's a tendency for the male, patriarchy we call it these days and we find it everywhere, uh, to simply, not necessarily deliberately, but just automatically just go their own way and and the wife or the, the woman is just sort of relegated. It's not sort of often that deliberate, but just happens and it happens everywhere and there's a sense and we particularly see in feminism of a sense of this is not right and this desire to for something else for a different relationship and so it's very jagged isn't it and I think what Paul is driving at is there's two things to happen at once and it doesn't always happen but two things to happen at once for husbands if we deal just with the, that relationship for a moment for husbands to stop and think and love and not simply go their own way and think that it's all about them and you know I have to confess that I've been like that at times in my life. But to, to do things out of a desire to see the lady that's come into my life fulfilled to the utmost. Why did Christ die for the church? That he might make this body that he calls his bride, the church, purified, radiant, without stain or wrinkle or blemish, holy and blameless, to be completed, to be fulfilled, to be made all that we're meant to be. And likewise, husbands in their marriage, their, their role, their goal, their primary goal apart from following Christ and in following Christ is that the woman should be all that she could be, that she is fulfilled that she's given every opportunity to, to be all that she could be, that she's lifted up, she's de- delighted in. We don't always do that, do we? I have to put my hand up for that one. And the flip side is that women instead of... Uh, When this happens, it enables the woman to take her place 
without the striving. She's all to be free in the context of this love to be all that she could be without that sense of, but what about me? Because it's all about her in her husband's eyes. Just as for Christ, it's all about us. Everything that Christ does is motivated of love for us. That's a big call, guys. That's a big call, women. But I think that that is what Paul is driving at here. And I'll just draw your attention to the last verse there. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Speaking pastorally, one of the, one of the things that I have observed uh, over... Uh, observed in my own relationship with Diane, my wife. One of the most corrosive things for a male in a relationship is if they're not respected. If they're made to feel inadequate, that they don't meet the mark. That is profoundly disturbing to the male psyche. And what is most profoundly uh, destructive to the female psyche is to not feel loved, to not feel valued for herself. There's something to work on in terms of your, your marriages, your relationships. And if you're not in one at the moment, that's something to, to bear in mind in terms of how God has made us. Our primary needs as a, a male, it's, it's around respect, being adequate, being seen to be up to it. And if they're not getting that message, it will be corrosive. They will find it harder and harder to express love. It becomes a vicious cycle. And for, for the wife, if they're not feeling loved, they'll find it incredibly hard to show respect and it'll be corrosive the other way. And that becomes a really vicious, negative feedback loop. But if love and respect flow in this cycle of relationship, it will be a positive feedback loop. I used to be an electrical engineer, so I feedback loops <laughs> work really well in my mind. Okay. Okay, can I leave that those thoughts with you in a really practical way as something that you can bring into your relationships and hopefully it's reflecting what God I think is getting at here and it can be really helpful to you whether you've been married a long time or a short time or not quite yet uh, that you can take that and, and build that into your understanding that your lives might be enriched as Paul and behind Paul God ultimately wants your lives to be enriched. Okay, just to quickly wrap up, uh, in chapter 6, seeing goes to verse 9 uh, today, just very quickly, talks about children and parents, uh, children to be obedient to parents, but parents not to exasperate, not to frustrate the children. How vitally important 
yeah. uh, for, for there to be enrichment both ways for both parties, for parents and for children. You know, parents in control, and they can do things that really upset and frustrate uh, and are really negative and unhelpful and make it really hard for kids to obey. What are you saying that for, Dad? You know, I don't want to do that. You know, why should I do that? But to, you, to create a relationship where there is trust, where the parent is not being unreasonable, deliberately difficult, and create an atmosphere where the children are able to obey. They still won't always. That's the nature of our broken, fallen world. And equally, it talks about slaves and masters. I think in our context, unfortunately, slavery is as far from dead in our world, as you know. There's probably more slaves today than there has ever been uh, around the world. But fortunately, they're a bit few and far between in Australia. All those there's aspects of slavery that occur even here in Australia. Perhaps the best way of us to understanding it in our context uh, is perhaps because we, most of us, and many of us are at work, we have a boss, and there are those that work. I think that's perhaps the best way that we can translate that into our context. We, as if we are employees, then we should give our best effort. We should be loyal. Um, and equally, if we're a boss, we shouldn't take advantage of those that work for us. We should give them a fair shake. Um, we should treat them with respect. We should give them what we owe them. Of course, in all of this, we live still in a broken world and things don't always work out that way. We do see marriages where there's abuse, and in my mind, that sort of abuse, uh, physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, uh, even economic abuse, uh, there comes a point where uh, the marriage vows are actually broken. The vows to love and trust and honour, to always do the best for the other, are totally broken. And sadly, that's a, a reality. And there's reasons for people to step out of those relationships when that exists. There are broken homes. My wife has been chaplain and deals with a lot of brokenness in families. There's a lot of uh, injustice sometimes in the workplace. You might be asked to do something that's unethical. There comes a point where we have to say no. And it's right to say no. So in each of these relational contexts that we will sit within, uh, I want to acknowledge the fact that life can throw situations where other choices have to be made. To walk out of a relationship, to step away from a parental relationship, to say no to a boss, I'm not going to do that, even though it might mean, okay, there's the door. Uh, but it's not unlimited obedience, unlimited giving. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Well, I think we've spent enough time in Ephesians, and hopefully there's some things you can take away that are helpful to you and encouraging to you.